0: On that note, let us pray. Blessed Lord, who caused all holy scriptures to be written for our learning, grant us so to hear them, read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest them, that by patience and the comfort of your holy word we may embrace and ever hold fast the blessed hope of everlasting life, which you have given us in our Savior Jesus Christ, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit one God, forever and ever. Amen. Um, Right, we are in Job. We just finished last week the Friends Council and Job's replies. We're going to look at an interlude on wisdom, which is chapter 28. We'll look at that more closely than uh, the remainder of uh, Job's discourse and Elihu's speeches, but we will look at those. Job's final complaint and the speeches of Elihu. So that's where we are. We're, yeah, that's about where we are. It's not really to scale. When you finish the Friends' counsel and Job's reply, you're about two thirds through the book. That takes up the bulk of it. Uh, Let me go ahead and read from chapter 28, starting with verse 1. There is a mine for silver, and a place where gold is refined. Iron is taken from the earth, and copper is smelted from ore. Man puts an end to the darkness. He searches the farthest recesses, for ore in the blackest darkness. Far from where people dwell, he cuts a shaft. In places forgotten by the foot of man... Far from men he dangles and sways. The earth from which food comes is transformed below as by fire. Sapphires come from its rocks, and its dust contains nuggets of gold. No bird of prey knows that hidden path. No falcon's eye has seen it. Proud beasts do not set foot on it, and no lion prowls there. Man's hand assaults the flinty rock and lays bare the roots of mountains he tunnels through the rock his eyes see all its treasures he searches the sources of the rivers and brings hidden things to light but where can wisdom be found where does understanding dwell man does not comprehend its worth it cannot be found in the land of the living the deep says it is not in me The sea says, it is not in me. It cannot be bought with the finest gold, nor can its price be weighed in silver. It cannot be bought with the gold of Ophir, with precious onyx or sapphires. Neither gold nor crystal can compare with it, nor can it be had for jewels of gold. Coral and jasper are not worthy of mention. The price of wisdom is beyond rubies. The topaz of Cush cannot compare with it. It cannot be bought with pure gold. Where then does wisdom come from? Where does understanding dwell? It is hidden from the eyes of every living thing, concealed even from the birds of the air. Destruction and death say only a rumor of it has reached our ears. God understands the way to it, and he alone knows where it dwells. For he views the ends of the earth and sees everything under the heavens. When he established the force of the winds and measured out the waters. When he made a decree for the rain and a path for the thunderstorm. Then he looked at wisdom and appraised it. He confirmed it and tested it. And he said said to man, the fear of the Lord, that is wisdom. And to shun evil is understanding. Now, if you didn't know that was in the book of Job, you would know it was wisdom literature, but it already seems out of character what we've already read and discussed. Chapter 8 is like the calm eye of a hurricane. It's an interlude between the storm that has already come, that has already passed, and the storm that's about to come a pause for reflection between the end of the dialogues of the friends and the remaining speeches of Elihu and God. Now there is such a marked difference in tone and even somewhat in content between this chapter and the rest of Job. Uh, We are fairly certain that the author is the voice we hear rather than Job or one of his friends. The tone is calm and contemplative. It is all of Job is... Poetic, but this is even more elevated poetry. It's neither agitated like Job or angry like his friends, and it is also not overbearing like Elihu is going to be, and we'll talk about him in a little while, nor is it overwhelming like God will be, and we'll talk about God next week. The author has two primary purposes in this chapter. Two primary ones. There's, I, think there's, I think it's meant to give a pause in the action, but the primary is first he judges the efforts of the friends to teach Job wisdom a failure. In case the readers were wondering uh, the answer to, did Job's friends really help him understand wisdom, the answer is no. Their understanding is rote, shallow, it's inflexible. They might know the right words, but they don't really know wisdom. They have failed as teachers as well as failed to be compassionate friends. Second main purpose is the author prepares the reader for God's appearance in the sense that he leaves a question almost hanging, but not quite. The question, where can wisdom be found, can only be answered with God. He gives that answer, but he also makes us anticipate and expect more. So this chapter is a hymn to wisdom, extolling its value but also pondering its hiddenness. Where can wisdom be found? Uh, It has four parts. The first, man cannot mine wisdom. Now the mining metaphor is really about man's technology. Uh, It wouldn't perhaps be the most advanced technology in the ancient world, but it would be one of the most important. Mining in the earth for both uh, useful ores and precious metal. Mining metaphor shows that wisdom is beyond man's depth. Uh, This metaphor extends to all human scientific and technological prowess. Uh, It's often impressive uh, if you're of a certain age and you were you were uh, aware and conscious in 1969. You might have watched the moon landing uh, on television. I did, and in the, the blast-off when the lunar lander left the moon. That was impressive. Um, we have gone from, uh, even in just computer technology, there's more computer technology on your phone than was on the entire Apollo moon mission. There there really is. That's not an exaggeration. Uh, Our scientific and technological prowess also sets humanity above the animals. We are aware of ourselves, we are aware of our surroundings, and we are aware that there's something beyond us, but no human exploration or achievement can unearth or discover wisdom. That's what that section is saying. The second uh, the second part is that wisdom is priceless it cannot be bought with gold or precious gems uh, you can be rich but not smart nor can wisdom be purchased with advanced degrees or the accumulation of vast amounts of information uh, it is I you I, I really prefer hard copy books and I almost I, I buy very few books on Kindle or online. Uh, I do not own the latest in software for biblical studies. I prefer uh, to look at commentaries in writing, and I prefer to look at uh, helps in writing. But one thing I do is it's just very convenient. If, if I run across a word I don't know, I always look it up on my phone. You know, and and if you don't know something right now, what are you supposed to do? Google it. There's there's so much information accumulated. Of course there's disinformation, but now we've got a government agency to take care of that. Um, but this is not wisdom. Uh, the accumulation of vast quantities of information is not wisdom. I'm not saying that that information can't be put to good purposes, but it's not the same as wisdom. Uh, Third thing is wisdom cannot be found within creation. It operates in creation, but creation is not the source of wisdom. Nothing within creation, even to the limits of death, destruction and death, say only a rumor has reached our ears. Or to the heights of the heavens, even the birds cannot see it from the air. Nothing in those limits is the key to wisdom. There's an example I, I wanted to, to mention that, that also that talks about how wisdom is not within creation, but also it transitions to where wisdom can be found, only with God. There was, it's a, it's a little obscure, there was an article by a famous mathematician called Eugene Wigner, uh, not Einstein or Lincoln. How many of you heard of Eugene Wigner? No, um, that's okay. Uh, Eugene Wigner was a well-known mathematician who wrote a very famous essay, which I recommend because you don't have to know math to do it, called The Unreasonable Effectiveness of Mathematics. Now, Eugene Wigner was an atheist and a materialist, uh, and he also believed that mathematics was an invention, not a discovery. But the article uh, Muse on why mathematics developed by human beings for no other reason than they like to work with numbers could then be found to actually fit with how the real world worked. And the whole article is about how this just doesn't make sense. Well, no, it doesn't make sense if there is no God. I've I've just summarized, you know, like the essay in, in three sentences. But he was saying that mathematics like that doesn't make sense... But it does make sense if you think of God as, among other things, a mathematician. Mathematics is a form of knowledge and understanding of wisdom. And among other things, God has created the universe according to a mathematical undersketch, you might say. The physical universe works according to mathematics. If you strictly believe that there is nothing but creation, this doesn't make sense to you. You do not understand how mathematics can describe the real world. But if you understand that wisdom comes from God, it makes perfect sense. If we are within creation and we can't see the whole thing at once and we don't know what the meaning and purpose of it are, we are not going to understand wisdom. It's only by looking outside it to what transcends it we ever really get a handle on what wisdom is, even in something uh, as simply prosaic as mathematics. Wisdom transcends the creation and so wisdom is found only with God. God views the ends of the earth and sees everything under the heavens in verse 24. Because he is beyond them, he is the creator and sustainer of the universe. He is not within the creation. The creation is not part of him. The creation is not him. He transcends it. He's beyond it. He sees all of it at once. And he understands it from the, from the smallest subatomic particle to the great vastness of space. The only way man can find wisdom, then, is in reverent fear before his creator. So what the book of Proverbs begin with... And we find, we find at the end of this hymn, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And so the only way for men and women to know wisdom is to have a reverent fear and worship of God. So after that calm, we return to Job's final complaint, his... Anguish and his pain and his complaint to God. Uh, let me read some selections from Job 29, chapter 29 through chapter 31. Job 29, 1 through 6. Job continued his discourse. How I long for the months gone by, for the days when, Job, when God watched over me when his lamp shone upon my head, and by his light I walk through darkness. Oh, for the days when I was in my prime, when God's intimate friendship blessed my house, when the Almighty was still with me and my children were around me, when my path was drenched with cream and the rock poured out for me streams of olive oil. Chapter 30, verses 16 through 23. And now my life ebbs away, days of suffering grip me, night pierces my bones, my gnawing pains never rest. In his great power, God becomes like clothing to me, he binds me like the neck of my garment. He throws me in the mud, and I am reduced to dust and ashes. I cry out to you, O God, but you do not answer. I stand up, but you merely look at me. You turn on me ruthlessly. With the might of your hand, you attack me. You snatch me up and drive me before the wind. You toss me about in the storm. I know you will bring me down to death, to the place appointed for all the living. And chapter 31, starting with verse 5. If I have walked in falsehood or my foot has hurried after deceit, let God weigh me in honest scales and he will know that I am blameless. If my steps have turned from the path, if my heart has been led by my eyes, or if, hands, if my hands have been defiled, then may others eat what I have sown and may my crops be uprooted. And 35 through 37. Oh, that I had someone to hear me. I sign now my defense. Let the Almighty answer me. Let my accuser put his indictment in writing. Surely I would wear it on my shoulder. I would put it on like a crown. I would give him an account of my every step. Like a prince, I would approach him. So with the end of the dialogues with his friends, Job is left with the facts of his unmerited suffering. We know they're unmerited. And he senses that he is not being punished for any sin that he has done. He's left with his unmerited suffering, his friend's reproaches. They have gone from sort of comforting him to outright accusing him of being an unrepentant sinner. He's left with his unmerited suffering, his friend's reproaches, and the world's intolerable wrongs. A sense of injustice that he experienced both about him and the way that the wicked seem to prosper. Uh, This is in the words of Old Testament scholar Derek Kidner. His constant companions were his physical and emotional pain, his unending suffering, and the sense that God now treated him as an enemy. Throughout his suffering, though, Job has maintained his innocence and his integrity before his friends. He has refused... To to accept their counsel that all he needs to do is repent of his hidden sin and that all things will be restored from him, that he should worship God for what God will do for him. Now he directs his final complaint to God, seeking justice and a legal judgment from God. So in this section, Job's monologue resembles an a legal argument. Uh, with the author drawing on the legal customs and traditions of his time, particularly what was called an Oath of Innocence, which we'll get to in a few moments. His case is presented in three parts. And it's as though Job were actually being his own defense attorney. First, Job remembers the blessedness, abundance, and the happiness of his former life. In chapter 29, he recalls when God was his friend who blessed him with family and children. He reminisces about the times when he was a revered leader whose counsel was eagerly sought. And he remembers when he was a friend to the poor and needy. Secondly, he laments his suffering and his anguish and his shame which he attributes to directly to God in chapter 30, verse 19. He throws me into the mud, and I am reduced to dust and ashes. Finally, in chapter 31, Job swears an oath of innocence. He recites a long list of sins that he has not committed. He has not committed lust with his eyes in verse Chapter 31, verse 1. I made a covenant with my eyes not to look lustfully at a girl. He has not committed adultery. In chapter 31, verse 9. If my heart has been enticed by a woman or if I have lurked at my neighbor's door, then may my wife grind another man's grain and may other men sleep with her. He denies... Excuse me... (coughs) He denies, not caring about, he denies that he hasn't cared for the poor and the oppressed. He denies that he has treated his servants badly. He denies whole hosts of sins and then swears self-maledictory oaths. If I have done this, may this happen to me. He calls curses on himself should any of his words be proven false. May God do this to me if I'm lying. Uh, According to uh, Old Testament scholar Elmer Smick in the legal customs of the day, after such a statement, the burden of proof fell on the court. The accuser had to be proven guilty or declared innocent. Once a man declares his innocence like that and brings oaths down upon himself. So if a man has falsely accused someone... And the other man says, no, may, may God destroy my life if I've done such a thing. Then the man who's made the accusation has to produce proof or take away his charges. And this is what he is doing before God. And if we leave it there. Job's longing must have been for God to then and there to answer and vindicate him. But but that doesn't happen, not right away anyway. Um, After the words of Job are ended, in 31 verse 40, the words of Job are ended after he takes this oath of innocence and asks God to vindicate him. But... But after the words of Job are ended, the friends are silent. They have nothing further to say. They are rendered speechless by Job's claim of righteousness and his direct and daring challenge to God. So a young man, apparently a young angry man, or an angry young man. Elihu, has been, he's been present all along, but he has hold his peace, deferring to his elders but now he begs permission to speak. And we'll read some of his words, starting in chapter 2, verses 1 through 14. So these three men stopped answering Job because he was righteous in his own eyes. But Elihu, son of Barakel, the Buzite of the family of Ram, became very angry with Job for justifying himself rather than God. He was also angry with the three friends because they had found no way to refute Job and yet had condemned him. Now Elihu had waited before speaking to Job because they they were older than he. But when he saw that the three men had nothing more to say, his anger was aroused. So we're told three times he's angry. And I have read... I'm not a Hebrew scholar, that in the Hebrew it actually has him four times. So Elihu, son of Barakel the Buzite, said, I am young in years, and you are old. That is why I was fearful, not daring to tell you what I know. I thought age should speak, advanced years should teach wisdom. But is the spirit in a man the breath of the Almighty that gives him understanding. It is not only the old who are wise, not only the age to understand what is right. Therefore, I say, listen to me. I too will tell you what I know. I waited while you spoke. I listened to your reasoning while you were searching for words. I gave you my full attention, but not one of you has proved Job wrong. None of you has answered his arguments. Do not say, we have found wisdom. Let God refute him, not man. But Job has marshalled not marshalled his words against me, and I will not answer him with your arguments. Verses seventeen through twenty. I too will have my say. (coughs) Excuse me. I will tell you what I know, for I am full of words, and the spirit within me compels me. Inside I am like bottled up wine like new wine skins ready to burst i must speak and find relief i must open my lips and reply so we have this young young and angry man just bursting to have his say in the matter oh and he will have his say for several chapters in 3331 through 33 Pay attention, Job, and listen to me. Be silent, and I will speak. If you have anything to say, answer me. Speak up, for I want you to be cleared. But if not, then listen to me. Be silent, and I will teach you wisdom. Elihu will go on to make four long speeches which go unanswered. In the first speech, he emphasizes God's use of suffering... For discipline. In the second, he defends God's just rule in the world. In the third, he argues that neither human sin nor righteousness affect God, and God is under obligation to no one. In the fourth and final speech, Elihu reiterates that suffering is disciplinary and unknowingly, and he doesn't, he's not aware of it, but he's preparing Job for God's appearance. So Elihu is bombastic and somewhat of a blowhard. And he has some comedic qualities to him, but he isn't really a caricature. I think it's because of the realism uh, that is in this uh, character that, that we do at times find him humorous because there are people like that we find humorous. And he's not superfluous to the story. His character plays an essential role in the story. Uh, First of all, he delays the climax, which is going to be God's answer to Job, so that it will not look like Job has forced God's hands. And this is important. The author is an Israelite. He's well aware that God, God is sovereign and free in his dealings with man. His hand cannot be forced and he is under obligation to no one. So God doesn't have to answer Job. And so God's, I mean, Job's pushing it right there. I mean, he's going right up to the edge, almost to blasphemy and accusing God of doing wrong. So... Elihu's warning to Job about his declarations of his own righteousness and his charges against Job also prepares Job for the possibility that he might have to surrender his avowal of innocence when God addresses him. As Job interpreter John Hartley has has commented. Finally, uh, Elihu's emphasis on God's glory in nature, and we'll look at that briefly verses, chapter 37, verses 2 through 5, prepares Job and the reader for God's appearance in the storm. And this is when I mean inadvertently. Of course, the author knows what he's doing. But in Job 37, 2 through 5, Listen, listen to the roar of his voice, voice, to the rumbling that comes from his mouth. He unleashes his lightning beneath the whole heaven and sends it to the ends of the earth after that comes the sound of his roar he thunders with his majestic voice when his voice resounds he holds nothing back god's voice thunders in marvelous ways he goes he does great things beyond our understanding and this is how elihu finishes his speech and it anticipates god's appearance in the storm and to that appearance, we'll look in our next and last lesson. I didn't want to try and get through that today because that's going to be one of the most important things we can look at. So we're, we're, we're a little short today, so we have plenty of time for questions if you have any questions. Uh, next week, we'll look at the climax. John, did you have a question? So, is that what you- What? He's not, there's no response there is no response to Elihu no so, not, not there's no response we to Satan take him either as like a, you know, a completely different metaphor than the other three guys I mean, it's, 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 no he has one additional aspect of wisdom I mean of job's suffering uh, that you think of that he he notes that it could be disciplinary he is not as totally locked in to the way that the friends think of it they think that the only reason you suffer is because you're a sinner so you suffer because you sin if you sin if you suffer then you're sinning according to elihu well that's not the only reason he does add something to discussion which is wisdom could be disciplinary now in that sense i mean i mean he's right and as a matter of fact, within a certain you know, kind of narrow way of looking at it, the friends weren't totally wrong either. The problem is they were locked into this idea of the doctrine of retribution, not only being absolute but being completed in this lifetime, that the wicked always get what they deserve, you know, the wicked never prosper, you know, and this is quite against all the evidence even back then. Uh, and the righteous always prosper, which we know that isn't true either. Uh, Elihu is, in a sense, uh, he is a bit bombastic. He's full of himself, but he's also a bit more sophisticated. But even then, we already know because we've been told that that's not why Job is suffering. So we're, we're being taught, yes, there are reasons for suffering. Sometimes you suffer for sin, Sometimes you suffer for disciplinary reasons. You know, God is trying to to lead you a certain way. Sometimes you suffer for God only knows what, literally. Um, and so we have to deal with that. And how we deal with that, well, I'll, I'll leave that till next week. What about the fact that he's younger than everybody else who's there? Is that there's some, something we can Well, do yes, that? of course. This is the one thing i think which i mean i can't really verify is that they they save the youngest for last because of course wisdom particularly in an ancient culture and even some cultures today wisdom resides with with the elders and of course that makes sense if you've lived longer you've had more experience i mean you are supposed to be older and wiser i mean i've met young people who were wise beyond their years And there's no fool like an old fool, as they say, someone who has refused to learn from life. So Job is trying to find wisdom in how to deal with his situation. And first the elders have their say. And then, well, well, let's have the youth have say. Let's see if they have any insight, if they can actually solve Job's problem. And I think the author is showing, no... Sometimes even the wisdom of youth is not sufficient. The wisdom of the elders is not sufficient, and the the wisdom of youth is not sufficient. No human wisdom can actually fully address Job's suffering, which is part of the the message of the interlude, which, again, uh, most, I say most, and it is most. Most uh, commentators on Job would agree that this is not the meant to be a speech of Job or uh, anyone else. It's the author taking a break, which happens in literature a lot. Um, well, enough. Um, if you've ever read War and Peace, I read it in the abridged version. Uh, and then I read it in the, uh, the original. The whole there's a portion of the book after two-thirds it's, it's Tolstoy just giving a disquisition on the meaning of history. And it's like you can skip the whole thing and you'll still get what the book is. You can't do that with here. Um, on a popular level, Michael Crichton, if you, he, he, he's most famous for writing the book Jurassic Park. But he has this habit in his books of, of uh, digressing into scientific discussions. Now he starts with him sort of being in the mouths of the character, but after a while I said this this is Michael Crichton talking um, and so and it's very interesting so so I like his I like his books. So the idea that an author would break into the middle of a story and start. Contemplating and reflecting on the meaning of what's going on is not that unusual even today. Any other questions? Uh, Colleen. So is there any in the in the whole book and at the end, is there any just mystery that we have to accept in it or is every is it all answered in lay? Well, well, yeah, the whole – one of the main points is that sometimes the only thing you can rely on is not that you have an explanation for your suffering, but that whatever happens, God is trustworthy and keeps his promises. Sometimes that is quite all you have. And we'll find – I don't want to give away the story. You can read ahead. Um, <laughs> But we'll find out what God has to say about all this next week because um, even if you've read the whole book of Job up to that point but never finished it and have never heard about it, it's somewhat surprising. But it's really surprising to people who've only heard the name Job or heard about Job's patience. And the, the final thing where Job is restored, what actually God has to say. Well, I'll just say it isn't what. If somebody wrote it today, it wasn't there. There, Job, everything will be all right now. Yeah. Anne. Well, I was kind of. It was kind of related to that. I mean, are are we supposed to use it as almost like a guide in your own life? Like, should you kind of first think if you have suffering that you're, you know you're praying about it but you should be thinking about is it coming from sin and then you should be thinking about maybe as you know as time goes by you realize that it was like for disciplinary reasons or you may never know the answer in this life i mean is that kind of well yeah sure (laughs) you get an a plus okay yeah um look um it's kind of a snarky meme, but there is you've heard uh, everything happens for a reason. Uh, there's a very snarky meme that says, uh, yeah, everything happens for a reason, and sometimes it's because you're stupid and make bad choices. Okay. <laughs> That's true, isn't it? I'm stupid, and I make bad choices. Um, and we, we still all do that. I mean, I, let's just say my choices aren't as bad as they used to be when I was a teenager, and I won't talk about that right now. Um, so, yeah, you should think about that. But then we should also say, what is God trying? Is he trying to push me into a, a different direction than I'm going? I'm not really being punished so much as I'm being disciplined, although, you know, there's a fine line. Um, nobody likes discipline. Even the Bible says that. Uh, but then there really is an element of suffering. Uh, we could call it innocent suffering. You know, why, why, do, uh, why do children get cancer? What have they done? Uh, there's all kinds of reasons why we, we really don't know. And then it's not this, – this is my answer. This is not – again, I don't want to give away the answer next week. Um, is, is, I may not know why I suffer, why other people suffer, why there's so much injustice. Um, you know, I got asked frequently when we discussed this in, in high school class, you know, what about, what about you know, babies who die? And I said, well, we don't know, but all we know is they're in the hands of a just and loving God. And so I know, I know for other reasons, God is just and loving and he always keeps his promises. That's not quite the answer we're going to hear in Job, but I think it's consonant with it. So, so yeah, actually, you, you should consider if something bad happens, you know, if you go to the bar and drink a whole lot and, you, you know, you hit an abutment and you end up in the hospital, you, you know, what did I do wrong? Yes. Uh, you, you might think about that. Um, and you might think of, you know, disciplinary reasons. God might just be trying to get your attention. Or you might not know. And I think, you know, you think you will know in heaven, but actually after, when you get to heaven, I don't think you're going to care, just yeah. frankly. <laughs> Paul said that, you know, the, the sufferings of this lifetime are not to be compared. Yes? Um, well, Nick wanted to mention God will let us suffer from our own mistakes and things to show us how much we need him. So sometimes I feel like sometimes he'll let us go through a lot of pain just to show us that, you know, we're weak, we're sinners, and we need him. I would completely agree with that. And you could put that under discipline, or we could make a fourth category, but yeah, I think... I think you need to be, I think every human being needs to con- be convinced that they really can't handle life. Um, so I wouldn't disagree with that. Um, but that may not be why someone is suffering. It may be, it may not be. It just states it, though, in the Bible. It just says, you can, right. basically, you can't wear the crown unless you win right. the kind of cross. right or as they say, he won't look you over for trophies, he'll look you over for scars, that kind of thing. Any other questions or comments? That, that was very good, Piper. Anybody else? What, what time we got? Okay. All right, well, well next week we'll see what God has to say about all this. Thank you very much.